Well, I don't think any of that content was funny yet. Uh, Peter, I have an important question for you. <laughs> oh, is this one, something you've had on standby for this type of situation? Yeah, that was ominous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've, I've been needing this information for a long time, and I think tonight is the night for you to tell me, what's your Star Wars ranking? Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and uh, Peter, Jeremy, I want you guys to know that as the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're going to see it's our destiny. You've got a friend in me. Aww. You went with the Randy Newman connection. Oh, is that who wrote that? I was just trying to speak from the heart. Oh, I thought you were quoting Toy Story. What's that? Uh, it's never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's one of those Star Wars movies. Oh, it's part of the Star Wars universe. Okay. Yeah. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I got to tell you guys, I've been trying my hand at some union organizing. Hasn't been going well. Oh no, what happened? Well, I've been trying to start a dancing bears union, and they're bears, they're not into it. <laughs> That's it. Interesting. Wow. What a struggle. Any any thoughts on how you're going to remedy this? Is that all there is, Jeremy? Yeah, that's all there is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's no punchline coming. Just disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Topical. Well, if that's all there is, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I am excited to announce my latest project, which is I'm producing a collection of Peggy Lee covers performed by the band Disturbed. Oh, no. <laughs> it's called... Get down with the fever. Oh, I love it. Perfect. All right, sign me up. One day I'm going to get Sean into new metal. It'll be that. It already happened in uh, junior high, my dude. <laughs> oh, see, that was my whole purpose with putting together this collection of Peggy Lee covers as done by Disturbed was in hopes of getting Sean Hartman into new metal. Get him back and <laughs> well, it's metal. A, a secret plan. Yeah, we got to bring me back <laughs> for too long. I've been off the new metal train. Scene hasn't been the same without you, Sean. Yeah, it's it's time that I get rolling, rolling, rolling. You know. You. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've already fallen way off course <laughs> before we've even announced who it is we're here to discuss today. Sean, why don't you tell us? All right. I'm coming in with the strong course correct here because we are talking about an album I'm super excited about. I've been very hyped. I've been trying desperately to get Jeremy and Peter as equally hyped as I am for this episode because 
This album is special. We're talking about Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is from 1969. We're going to kick off with the title track, but real quick before we do that, I want to kind of frame this album for the listeners and provide a little bit of context because I think context is especially important with this record. So when this album came out in 1969, Peggy Lee was 49 years old. This was her 42nd full-length album. This had been 10 years since her last top 10 hit, and she had this kind of contrast between her public image and her private reputation. People who knew her knew her as kind of a partier and a a loose cannon, but on TV, especially in the early days of her career, she had this very squeaky clean, beautiful, perfect image. The song that we're going to hear, the title track, was written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who, if you're not familiar, are most famous for writing some early rock and roll hits like Hound Dog for Elvis Presley and Kansas City for Wilbert Harrison. The result of all this is an album which I think belongs in an I'd Buy That for a Dollar box set, along with Frank Sinatra's Watertown and Morgana King's New Beginnings. With a a working title of Sad Aging Crooners Attempt to Appeal to the Youth and End Up Creating a Masterpiece. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A nice, concise title. Yeah, working title. (laughs) We'll shop that one around a bit. Uh, Side note, Peggy Lee's album is arguably the strangest and yet probably the most commercially successful of those three records. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, so pro tip, if you are an aging megastar listening to this podcast, just start making weird music. Remember, no one would be still talking about Scott Walker if he hadn't made Tilt. Yeah, my brain was already going there. (laughs) Perfect. All right, now with that framing, let's kick it off. Side A, track one, is that all there is? Written by Lieber and Stoller, arranged and conducted by, anybody know? Randy Newman. Randy Newman, Mr. Toy Story, you've got a friend in me himself. Here we go. (laughs) I remember when I was a little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced to the burning building out of the pavement. And I stood there, shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames and when it was all over i said to myself is that all there is to a fire is that all there is is that all there is if that's all there is my friends then let's keep dancing Let's break out the booze and have a ball If that's all there is And when I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to the circus The greatest show on earth There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat 
there watching. I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to the circus? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all. When I think of Peggy Lee, I don't necessarily jump right to fatalistic nihilism. (laughs) (laughs) Not the most commonly associated thing with Peggy Lee, to be fair. Yeah, and we didn't get a chance to get through all the verses there, but it gets, like, darker. It does. She... Yeah, the the next verse is her, like, you know, I, I bet I know what you're thinking. Why doesn't she just kill herself if she's so depressed? And then reveals that... Suicide would be just as boring as anything else, so why not break out the booze and have a ball? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's I, a mood. <laughs> I heard that song and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention the like the background music is almost absurd. I yeah, I think that's the Randy Newman coming through. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I kind of disagree, but we'll get into it more. <laughs> And Randy probably had a little bit of influence on the absurdity of it, but there's there's a lot going on with this song. Yeah, well, you're, yeah, this song specifically, you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this song was recorded first, and the rest of the album was kind of recorded around it. So this is really the centerpiece of the album in a lot of ways and sets the tone for everything else. Before we go any further, I want to ask both of you if you considered trying to use the running way the song is framed as your fake title <laughs> did you consider like some long-winded thing and then ending it with is that all there is yes that's what i did <laughs> you led me right up to it didn't you yeah <laughs> i set a trap for you yeah <laughs> that was intentional a trap full of dancing bears well played well played thank you I yeah I, I considered going that route and i and i always go third i thought someone's gonna get there before i do <laughs> and it would have just been a disappointment anyway <laughs> exactly <laughs> also her vocals you can hear i mean she sounds like almost drunk or something or like listless yeah i think the booze has already been broken out yeah yeah and it's such a question with this how much of the delivery is us seeing her true self behind the masking that is normally on display in her other records how much of it is her leaning into the character and the vibe of the whole thing and how much of it is her just being kind of world weary 42 albums into her career and maybe not quite giving a fuck anymore like she did when she was younger like it's combinations of all of it i would imagine 42 albums yeah at this point (laughs) yeah exactly and she didn't stop here 1969 42 (laughs) albums deep is that all there is (laughs) yeah and it's such an interesting message of an album to come out in 69 culturally with all the like hope and push for change from the hippies to like 
stand in such contrast to just like who cares? <laughs> well, it's, and and that's kind of interestingly, where this 1969 is largely regarded as kind of the the moment that that the the hippie dream died. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody talks about the Altamont ish incident, but what we should really be talking about is this Peggy Lee album that ruined the 60s for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Manson is off the hook as well. Yeah, he was a, he was a footnote in our history. <laughs> well, I am excited to learn about Peggy Lee as I know very little. Were either of you guys familiar with this song before this episode? It was a fairly big hit for her and is one that I think kind of increased in reputation after its release too. So a lot of people are familiar with this, but I really wasn't mm-hmm. very familiar with this song ahead of time. No, I don't recall. It seems it seems like one that would have uh, stood out had I heard it previously. Yeah, and that would yeah. have been <laughs> right up my alley, too. But, yeah, I hadn't heard it. You know, the other thing that I didn't really see anybody else talk about as far as the influences, which, again, we'll get into momentarily, but it reminds me a lot of the, like, 60s and 50s country music that was happening, especially the more, like, pop crossover stuff in Nashville. Just think about, like, Loretta Lynn and Tammy Wynette songs with spoken word monologues in them. Like, there was a lot of similar kind of storytelling aspect. Yeah, for sure. I love this record so much. And what's strange about it is that the the level of appreciation I have for this record doesn't really make sense considering how many elements it contains that are typically an immediate no for me. The only other album I can think of that really compares on that level would be Lulu by Lou Reed and Metallica. <laughs> uh-huh. Like it shouldn't work, but it just does for me for some reason. Uh, some of those elements and this album being, you know, songs arranged and written by Randy Newman. He's on like three tracks on here. There's a Neil Diamond cover. The lengthy spoken word sections are usually an immediate no for me. There's a strong cabaret music influence, which is not something I really seek out. And yet this album is just all about the mood, you know, the tone. And for me, all of these elements combined and taken in the context of her story and everything, it just only serves to elevate the album and make it even better for me. I mean, yeah, it's kind of bordering on the absurd in a lot of ways, the the record. And it, it struck me as something that should be this buried private press. <laughs> like the, the content of it almost feels like something you would find you know, just buried in the annals of recorded music history, but it's this huge hit album by a really popular singer. <laughs> I think, yeah, it touches on. I so I have like two friends that have recently gone through big breakups, and it there's like this fatalism that almost borders on humorous when you're around people who've just gone through a big life thing like that that i felt like this record tapped right into that where if you're not in it it almost seems silly like how dark it is but if you're in it like that's the world and yeah totally there's there's different levels of appreciation and it gets a huge range of reactions from people on top of being an album that 
I feel like a lot of people would really have to listen to multiple times before it they fully get it you know the first time i heard this i was like well this is not the peggy lee for me (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then came back and like gave a little more attention after just reading so many people raving about it and when it clicked i was just like oh my god this is a masterpiece that's you know like you were saying about there being so many elements of this that are usually a no for you sometimes i've found when there are it gets to a point with there are so many no elements for me that I'm drawn to it and just keep going back. <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. It's like, how, how, how could something be so not my thing? I, <laughs> I want to study this. <laughs> I've, I've had that same reaction a handful of times and it usually ends up being my favorite thing when I just like, can't stop thinking about how much I disliked it or can't like figure out why it affected me so much. Yeah. And yeah, I, when something affects you in a strong way, that usually is a, a sign of good art. Yes. Yeah, I Not agree. always. Not always, no. <laughs> Obvious exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to take some time and talk more about this song and the story of how it came into existence because it's pretty fascinating. This was a very unlikely hit in a lot of ways, and the story is kind of a, a series of coincidences. There are... It would have been so easy for this song to never see the light of day, and there were forces at work trying to make that so. (laughs) So we'll start at the beginning. Lieber and Stoller, the guys we mentioned, that's the other thing. You hear Lieber and Stoller wrote a song, and you get a specific kind of sound, like we said, the early rock and roll hound dog, and then you get this, like, cabaret music thing with, like, these, like, existential lyrics and... yeah. Yeah, I might yeah. have accepted, if you told me Jimmy Webb was the songwriter, I might not have been so surprised. See, that would make sense, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Lieber and Stoller had become tired of the rock and roll slash pop song formula that they had been working in for, you know, over a decade at this point, And they were looking to expand their horizons. The song was initially inspired by a short story called Disillusionment by German author Thomas Mann. The pair of songwriters both read it independently and compared notes and ideas of how to turn it into a song. And when they met up together, they realized that they were already going in the same direction separately and felt like this song has to happen now. The sound of the song was particularly influenced by cabaret music and specifically the music of German-American composer Kurt Weill. Not to be confused with indie rock sensation, Kurt Vile. He did, you know, a bunch of operas and contemporary classical music. And the the sound that you hear, especially on the verses of this song, is very influenced by him. It's kind of classical, but kind of Americana and kind of bouncy and weird. The other person that never really gets mentioned as an influence, but I couldn't help thinking about the comparison is Van Dyke Parks, specifically his earlier work like Song Cycles, has that kind of classical but bizarro, very strange, unsettling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as they're writing this song, they wrote it with one person specifically in mind. It was intended to be given to Marlene Dietrich, the famous German singer. When they pitched it to her and, you know, sang her the demo and everything. She turned it down saying, quote, that song you just sang to me is what I am, not what I do. Huh? Yeah. 
Interesting quote. And remember that for when we hear what Peggy's response was when she heard it. So after pitching the song to Marlene Dietrich, they offered the song to Barbara Streisand, who apparently never even replied. So their third pick was Peggy Lee, whose immediate response upon hearing it was, quote, I will kill you if you give this song to anyone but me. This is my song. This is the story of my life. Ooh. <laughs> it's a slightly different reaction. Yeah, but they both recognize the same thing in it. And whereas Marlene didn't want to show that part of her life on stage and wanted to keep personal things private, Peggy hears it and is like, no, I'm owning this. This is this is everything to me. Like, I have to do this. Yeah, I got the feeling reading about her and just in her voice, like the genuineness of her performance on here that it's not really a character. It's not much of a put on <laughs> like this is yeah, her. Mm-hmm. And like maybe one of the only times when you'll really hear that personal side of Peggy Lee, there, there's a lot of great Peggy Lee records. And before selecting this one, I was really struggling to figure out which one to pick. And, you know, my biggest complaint with a lot of her other records that I love is there's always a few songs that are just super corny and of the time and don't really translate. But this one just has this weight to it that you're, I mean, maybe there's other records that I'm not aware of, but I don't think you're really going to find uh, a comparison in her catalog to this record. Yeah. I didn't know much about her catalog. So I, you know, if this, <laughs> you at least kind of framed this as being, an unexpected album when you first told us this was going to be your selection. I think if I had gone in just thinking like, this is a normal Peggy Lee album, <laughs> I don't know how I would have felt, but it, to me, it's uh it seems honest. I'll say. Yeah. Honest, personal. And like you said, there's songs on here that are so, so personal and so stripped back. It feels like a private press thing for sure. Cool. So Peggy, demands to do the song with the stipulation that she would only record three takes of the song in the studio. She said this because Lieber and Stoller were infamously demanding in the studio. They hit the studio and she ended up recording 36 takes of this song in a row. And the 36th take was pure magic. Lieber and Stoller said it was one of the all time great performances. And when it was over, they realized that no one had hit record. Oh, <laughs> the version we all just heard was take number 37, which Lieber and Stoller said was great, but no take 36, which has been lost to that moment in history. Well, it seems fitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the story continues. So they, they get the song recorded and Capitol Records hears it and decides that it's too weird and flat out refused to release it. In a continuing series of coincidences, Capitol Records was trying to get some of their artists on a popular late-night TV show at the time, hosted by a guy named Joey Bishop. Joey had a huge crush on Peggy Lee, and told Capitol that he would only book their artist if he could also book Peggy Lee. So Peggy sees this situation, fully exploits it, and tells Capitol that she will only appear on the show if they release is that all there is and let her sing it on the show which they of course agree to do and then the record just becomes a surprise hit the song 
spent 10 weeks on the Billboard charts and peaked at number 11, and like we said, has only continued to grow in reputation since then. And the the moodiness and philosophical nature of the lyrics actually did connect with a younger audience really well. It was, you know, in contrast to a lot of the other loungy, contemporary kind of music that was being made like this. Like we said, there's just a weight and a realness to it that is easy to connect with. Peggy even won a Grammy for the song. It won Best Contemporary Vocal Performance, comma, female. Because, of course, we have to have those stipulations. <laughs> yeah, in a rare instance of the Grammys being cool. Yeah, <laughs> hasn't happened since. This was the last time, 1969. <laughs> this album was critically well-received. The back of the record is actually mostly just rave reviews from all the top music critics of the day. And then around the time of this release, she performed the song at the Nixon White House, and no one there seemed to enjoy it. <laughs> Apparently it was a very awkward response, and some people were kind of offended and just didn't get it. <laughs> that tracks. That's yeah. <laughs> people who spent their whole life like trying to get up this ladder, <laughs> just going in front of them and like, none of it matters. <laughs> So like we said, that was the first song recorded, and it sets the tone for the whole album. So let's get into the next song. My next selection is called Me and My Shadow. This is another, or not another, this is a old jazz standard, Tin Pan Alley kind of thing. It was arranged by a guy named Mundell Lowe, who was primarily a jazz guitarist and worked extensively with Peggy. No relation to Nick Lowe. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> this is side A, track three. Me and my shadow strolling down the avenue. Me. And when it's 
That's my favorite arrangement on this record. I don't know if it's my favorite song. It's close to it, but the, I just love the way that song is interpreted and arranged on here. It reminds me a lot of David Axelrod. Hmm. Yeah, it feels like lonely in the mix. It's very sparse. Her delivery is unbelievably good, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense for me and my shadow to feel lonely. Mm -hmm. The album was reissued in 2019 with a few alternate takes of some of the songs on here. One of them was Me and My Shadow. And I got to say, the the original album version, the one we just played, is so much better. The other take was kind of a full band thing, a little more upbeat, doesn't sound as sparse and desolate, and it's just, it doesn't hit nearly as hard. So I'm glad they experimented with it and stripped it down to that basically just piano and bass and her incredible vocal delivery on it. Good stuff. Yeah, and the fact that there was a 50th anniversary reissue of this once again just shows what a popular and well-loved album it is it's yet it feels like a lot of people don't know about it anymore yeah until now until now we're bringing it back the image i keep getting when i listen to this record is this kind of smoky dive bar and you're sitting in the corner and peggy lee is up on the small stage delivering this intense and mesmerizing performance to a nearly empty room which you know was not the reality like you know she was still a big enough star to probably pack medium-sized venues at this point and was always working but just the vibe that's on this record you know it just gives you that kind of image like you're one of the only people hearing this i did read that when she was performing if it was like too loud in the audience her reaction would be to sing even quieter. And that was just like her, I don't know. I feel like that's her vibe. Just like super quiet, like measured, subtle. She figured that out in the thirties and it became kind of a career defining technique. Instead of trying to shout over people, she would force them to pay attention. Like if a loud room realized they couldn't hear what she was saying, they would have to quiet down to get it. And then before you know it, she's got the whole room and rapt attention to her singing. And yeah, like you said, it, it, it plays in her vocal style. She's got this amazing sense of dynamic and control and just, man, the way she twists the words and puts a little inflection on it, it all is just perfect. I feel like she could definitely be performing in a bar in a David Lynch movie. Yeah, oh, this yeah. this record could be like the soundtrack to a Twin Peaks prequel series. Yeah, we need more of that anyway, so get on yeah. that, someone. Make it happen. <laughs> well, I would be remiss not to mention, speaking of make it happen, that the month of February is our Patreon push month. It sure is. So, if you go to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Now you can get some cool swag on top of all the cool stuff you'd normally get. And just to be clear, we're talking to the listener now. That's the you. He's not talking to me. It's you, dear listener. If you <laughs> do it now. Actually, I was talking to Peter. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Peter, we need you to really start supporting this podcast. We've got a Patreon that I think you'll really like. There's some great tiers that you should support. Yeah. <laughs> Tears are not enough. We learned that from ABC. <laughs> uh, Callback. Yeah. Let's talk about those tears. 
and what you'll get not only regularly, but what you'll get for signing up in the month of February 2023. At the $1 tier, the early access tier, that is where you will receive episodes a few days in advance of them going up on all the podcast platforms. So you'll be able to hear what we're talking about like three or four days in advance of everyone else. You'll be the coolest kid on the playground. Can confirm. And with that, for signing up in the month of February, you will get a sticker, and I'd buy that for a dollar exclusive season four sticker. At the $5 tier, the bonus episodes tier, which we record episodes about 45s or seven inches singles. We talk about the songs on those and do a small bio on the artist. We don't go quite as deep usually, but yeah, they're usually about a half an hour long. A little less deep, but a little more, uh, I feel like our personalities might come through a little more there. It's a little freer. A little more casual, for sure. So those are our bonus episodes, $5 tier. With that, for the month of February, you will receive a sticker along with a button you can pin and be loud and proud about your love and support for I'd buy that for a dollar. At the $10 tier, the exclusive monthly mix tier, we rotate each month making mixes related to the artists featured for that month, and we have a good old time doing those. Oh, yeah. I go all in. each Every month I develop a full-on concept and have to make this like multi-track session and do all this research. And it's really, <laughs> really ridiculous and over the top. And yeah, he lets his competitive nature fully shine through with these monthly mixes. That's true. But Sean and Peter bring their own unique games that I can't compete with. So I got to go a different way with it. <laughs> yeah. Our character, our unique character shines through in our monthly mixes. And with the monthly mix for signing up in the month of February, you will get the sticker, the button, plus a really rad tote bag. Great for carrying records. Yeah, we've seen, we gave out tote bags last year, and our Patreon supporters have sent photos of them using the tote bag to go record shopping. They work. They work wonderfully. True. (laughs) And finally. Listener tested. Listener tested, yes, and approved. And finally, at the... $25 tier, our our vinyl subscription tier has gone up in price per month due to the increase in shipping rates since we first put together our Patreon. And the vinyl subscription tier, our own DJ hard bargain, Sean Hartman here, will send you an LP, a 45, and a handwritten note. That's right. A curated selection from my own collection, as Peter once said. Yes. That's right. I'm glad you remembered that. My finest moment. Yeah. (laughs) And we have uh, increased that. That is a limited tier, and we have increased the amount of people who can participate in that. It has gone up from 10 to 15 now. So there are a few slots yet available. So sign up now, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast for the vinyl subscription. And with that, you will get the sticker, the button, the tote bag, and your very own I'd buy that for a dollar coffee mug. True. An extreme rarity out of probably 
20 tops. If we got 15, I always get three for me. You guys get one each. <laughs> Jeremy's been slowly cornering the market on I'd buy that for a dollar mug since his retirement plan. Yeah. Yeah. So that's everything that you can get for signing up in the month of February over at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. All the designs for this year, as with past years, have been put together by artist and illustrator Ellen Vandermeid, whose work you can see on Instagram at Voyage with Ellen, as well as the website voyagewithellen.com. Those designs will be going up on our social media mid-February 2023. So keep an eye out for that over at Instagram at I'd buy that podcast, as well as on Facebook, search I'd buy that for a dollar. Give us a like. You should see all that content come mid month. We will plan to ship this stuff out by May of 2023. But in the meantime, don't wait. Don't hesitate. Go over now to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast and sign up today. All right. Can I talk more about Peggy Lee now? You can. You may. Cool. I'm going to run through just wait, a real short. If you oh. order now. <laughs> just kidding. Go ahead. God, I'm so thrown off now. What are we even talking about? <laughs> Peggy Lee. Oh, Peggy Lee. So I'm just going to do a real quick bio. Because the thing about Peggy Lee is there's so much information out there. There's multiple books that were written about her, including a autobiography that she wrote herself. And... I just didn't want to even attempt to try and do a comprehensive bio and life story with Peggy, especially because there's so much to talk about with this record in particular. I think next season sometime we're going to do a follow-up Peggy Lee episode after maybe I can get a hold of a few of those books and get some more information. But whole catalog of amazing music, whole fascinating and kind of rocky life story at times. So let's get into... The basics. Peggy Lee lived from May 26, 1920 to January 21st, 2002. She was 81 when she passed. Her first given name was Norma Dolores Eggstrom. She grew up in North Dakota. She had a very rough childhood. Her mother died when she was four. Her father quickly remarried and her stepmother was very abusive there's a story of the stepmother refusing to take Peggy to the hospital when her appendix had burst up until Peggy's brother pointed a gun at the stepmother and forced her to take Peggy to the hospital. Wow. Yeah, that's just one story and there's many more. It was a very problematic childhood, which is why Peggy moved out on her own at 17 and started her full-time music career. She had been singing as a child, including some like local gigs and performing from a very young age. She changed her name to Peggy Lee in 1937 when she was just about to do a live radio broadcast and the DJ told her that her name was bad and needed to be changed and named her Peggy Lee and she just kept with it <laughs> for the rest of her career since 1937. That seems rude of the DJ, but... I think the DJ was onto something. Yeah, Eggstrom yeah. is not super radio friendly. <laughs> true, true. So just five years into her professional career, she had her first number one hit in 1942. And then pretty much from there was a huge star for decades. 
Um, you know, working primarily in the kind of lounge, jazz, pop, contemporary vocalist, big band, you know, whatever name you want to put on it. But she was one of the biggest stars of that scene in that time. She had several marriages over the course of her life. She had continued success, like we said. Um, Fever is probably her best-known song. She has several Christmas classics that get regularly played on the retro Christmas stations every year. And she also recorded a couple of very popular Latin Cuban rhythm-inspired crossover albums. And of course, as we established on our Christmas episode, not to be confused with Brenda Lee. True. (laughs) Both dollar bin heroes working in a similar time. Peggy had many, many live radio and television and film appearances. Uh, She did multiple voices and songs in the Disney film Lady and the Tramp. And for film, probably most notably, she was in the 1955 movie Pete Kelly's Blues, where she played a fading lounge singer who had taken to drinking. Yeah, I was reading even then that that character was not far off from her own life at that time. Yeah, like I said, there was the the break between people who knew her reputation and the people that only knew her image. And the farther on, it seemed like the the image was starting to crack more and more. And then, like you know, by the mid fifties with Pete Kelly's Blues, it was starting to become apparent that oh, this isn't a character. This is kind of who she is in a way. But at the same time, you know, she balanced her struggles and alcoholism and reputation with being a workaholic that was just constantly putting out material and performing at an incredibly high level at all times, it would seem. Uh, As I mentioned, she was prominently in Lady and the Tramp, which led in the 90s to her suing and winning several million dollars from the Walt Disney Corporation. Wow. Which actually set a precedent for many other artists to get royalties from home video sales. Basically what had happened is she had her contract for the songs and material in the movie. And then when it was released in home video, Disney decided that they didn't have to pay royalties to anyone because home video didn't exist when the contracts were made. And Peggy Lee fought that because there was similar clauses in her contract, it should count for royalties on home recording, especially if it's a thing that didn't even exist when the contract was made. And like I said, because she won, it opened the door for a lot of other artists to get similar deals. Major thing. Yeah, that sounds like a landmark decision <laughs> right there. Absolutely. Sticking it to the On man top of, and the mouth. Yeah, for real. The man and the mouth. <laughs> On top of all this, she was a huge songwriter. A groundbreaking female singer-songwriter, especially for the time she was working in. She actually penned over 200 songs during her career. Most of that was just the lyrics, but occasionally the music, and she would often collaborate with jazz musicians and other singers and arrangers and help with the lyrics. And her uh, her big song, Fever, was a cover of Little Willie John's song, but she wrote different lyrics and like added to it and changed the verses. Yeah, so always inserting her character into whatever she was recording. True, not just the interpretation, but also like making real changes to some things. Uh, She also identified as a poet. She, in fact, self-released a book of poetry in 1953 called Softly with Feeling. 
And that title is a reference to the singing and performing technique that we talked about earlier that Jeremy mentioned, the whole singing under an audience to get them to pay attention instead of trying to sing over top of the noise. It sounds like a method for taking care of children or something. <laughs> like, rather than... I mean, the larger the group of people, they just turn into children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Employ similar <laughs> tactics. True. Okay, it's time for what I can only assume is Jeremy's least favorite song on the album. Oh, that must... Neil Diamond one? No, it must be the Beatles cover. <laughs> yes, the George Harrison written something. I... I didn't mind this one, actually. The Neil Diamond one was the one I didn't like on this album. Oh, the Brother Loves Traveling Salvation Show? Yeah, I just don't like that song. Yeah, it's it's probably the, the weakest point of the whole record, I would say. I don't mind that song, and it did kind of grow on me, but if I had to pick a least favorite, it would be that one. The what, what Brother you, Loves. What you have to remember, Sean, is, you know, Jeremy here is a big Frank Sinatra fan, and of course, famously... Frank Sinatra's favorite Lennon-McCartney number was Something, written by George yeah. Harrison. <laughs> Interesting. I, don't, I, I think that's an apocryphal story that he attributed the song to Lennon-McCartney, but I'm not, I'm not certain. <laughs> we'll just leave, leave it at that. Okay, so this is side B, track two, Something, as we said, written by George Harrison, and this version is arranged by Mike Melvoin jazz pianist who did arrangements for many artists including martin denny and the ventures yes and of course father of wendy melvoin from prince's band the revolution as well as keyboardist jonathan melvoin who toured with the smashing pumpkins and who sadly he overdosed while on the road with them and died and with that (laughs) (laughs) just a web of sad connections associated to this album which yeah i guess it all fits in is that all there is is that all there is to a beatles cover (laughs) let's listen to something Like no other lover Something in the way He woos me I don't want to leave him now You know I believe in how Somewhere in his smile shows me I don't want to leave him now you know I believe in how you're asking me will my love grow
I saw that Peggy Lee was going to be performing something on this album, and given the nature of the album leading up to it, I was expecting for some wild interpretation of it, but it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's a fairly faithful cover, but Peggy still really owns it. It's got that tight, funky arrangement and great drums on that track, too. Yeah, and I, I like the... Yeah, it's like the same notes the Beatles were playing, but on different instruments. Mm-hmm. And again, her vocals, so great. It's like, listening to this album, you can tell that she doesn't have the same level of singing ability that she did in her younger days. But she just owns it so well. It's like she embraces the flaws in her vocals on this record, and it just, again, elevates it beyond anything that I could have guessed for. I was happy when I saw that you were going to include that one because I thought it was a pretty noteworthy cover. I tried really hard to find who the session players on this record were, and it doesn't seem to be any notes of who they were. But Capitol Records in the late 60s, I'm guessing probably mostly Wrecking Crew people, and I honestly I would be shocked if that wasn't Hal Blaine playing drums on that last song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very likely. It just just seems seems like his style, but I could be wrong. Yeah, if anyone knows, if you have information on the session players, hit us up at I'd buy that podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. If you were in the room in 1969, please let us know what happened. As we said, Peggy Lee and this album specifically have just continued in legacy and have been huge influences on people. While she may not be as much of a household name with younger people these days, there's a lot of singers that she's had a profound influence on. A short list of people who have expressed their admiration for Peggy Lee includes Adele, Madonna, Katie Lang, Debbie Harry, and Billie Eilish. In fact, there's footage of Debbie and Billie performing this album's title track at a Peggy Lee tribute concert. Yeah, I watched that. It was it was pretty good. I thought especially Billie Eilish with her persona. I was like, oh, she's going to kill that. And uh, I, she can't compete with Peggy. Not yet. Yeah. Probably needs another 15 years in the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Debbie Harry kind of nailed the whole world-weary vibe pretty well, though. Yeah. <laughs> that performance. <laughs> yeah. Regardless, though, it's cool to see people, you know, publicly appreciating this music. I, I saw the, the list that one website had written of these people. I was like, wait, has Billie Eilish actually said that she likes Peggy Lee or is that just like a comparison? Nope. Strong supporter of Peggy Lee. Uh, Katie Lang has said, I view her as my finest teacher of vocals. You know, I feel like I'm due to look into Katie Lang. It's an artist who has a huge following. And I know I know a couple of songs from the radio, but there's gotta be something there. It's got to be something. Probably has like 30 albums by now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not as many as Peggy Lee, though. Chasing that dream. <laughs> Tony Bennett famously referred to Peggy Lee as the female Frank Sinatra, which was a comparison that actually got made pretty often throughout her career. Yeah, that's where my mind went right away the first time I heard this album. Yeah, like, this album for sure <laughs> yeah like you, you said especially comparisons to like the the aging frank sinatra of watertown well yeah I, I think that uh 
Watertown was Frank's Is That All There Is. Oh, yeah. In uh, 1970. So, you know, right around the same time. He, he was like, hey, see what Peggy's doing over there. I got to get in on this weirdness. <laughs> Guess I'll make a record with the Four Seasons. the great duke allington once said that if i'm the duke man peggy lee is the queen i consider her as great a musician as frank sinatra who in that world is king man from duke allington from duke allington (laughs) if duke allington says you're the shit then it's just like that's it that's it game over like (laughs) it's confirmed yeah Frank Sinatra was a huge fan of Peggy Lee and has been quoted as saying that her wonderful talent should be studied by all vocalists. Her regal presence is pure elegance and charm. Peggy is just about the best friend a song ever had. Hmm. It's kind of interesting to me the way, I mean, Peggy Lee has an amazing voice, but to me what makes it amazing is that, like the real pain in it that you can tell kind of, I think we talked about this little in the Tammy Wynette episode, but like that earnest earned pain that like, you can't just fake, you can't just study that. Yeah. Which once again, going back to what you said about Billie Eilish probably needs a few more years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, a lot of those quotes are probably more referring to her earlier work, you know, when she's at her supposed peak and the height of her popularity. She had a much cleaner voice and was just an incredibly talented, pure vocalist at that point. And I think when we do our follow-up episode, I'll probably select an earlier record just to really give people the contrast of her catalog. Again, it's decades long. This is her 42nd album. There's a big range of Peggy Lee material to dive through. Yeah, Sean insists that we do a follow-up, not immediately, but sometime down the road. Yeah, we'll space it out, but it's it's going to happen. I'm speaking it into existence. It's been set on the airwaves. It is official. There will be a all right. Peggy Lee follow-up. Uh, you guys ready for me to just throw all of this into question and make you really just leave with a weird taste in your mouth yeah yeah donald trump has said that the song is that all there is is his favorite song of all time what (laughs) i read that like 20 minutes before starting this episode was just like what the fuck like (laughs) Was not expecting to see that. He like was said that like in an interview where he was just like thought the song was amazing and the lyrics were really interesting and he just has that attitude about stuff in his own life. Like he just does things and it was like, huh, that's all there was. Okay, whatever. Oh no. Why did I you, know. Why did you do this to us? <laughs> I mean, it makes a certain sense if you're rational if you believe what that he's earnest about what he's saying, like changes what he did into a different light but it kind of makes a sense yeah totally i think it also speaks to the appeal of this song and the strange universal appeal of it you know i guess it's part of the reason why it was such a big unexpected hit and why it has this longevity because even even people as terrible as donald trump can find something to love with peggy lee (laughs) well just not richard nixon he wasn't down with it well Wow. That's the difference between the two of them. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Their love of Peggy Lee. <laughs> Say what you will about Donald Trump, but at least he's a Peggy Lee fan. 
All right, let's quickly steer this conversation <laughs> elsewhere. Sean, do you have Peter. any recommended similar albums to this? Did you have enough time to put a list together with all your research into Peggy Lee? I did, but I kind of cheated and only picked records that we've talked about on the show before. So That's okay. Promote our episodes. Promote yeah, our past episodes. you know episodes. what? Why not? Why not? <laughs> this is a great podcast. I think you should listen to more episodes. Thanks for listening. So as we said, Frank Sinatra's Watertown from 1970 and Morgana King's New Beginnings from 1973. Endless comparisons, especially with Morgana King. I think Peggy and Morgana had similar fierce independent spirits and were able to gain a younger audience because of their unique and challenging interpretation of older music and traditional songs. A lot of comparisons, two amazing artists. Check out both those episodes. And uh, two more comparisons. Joe Williams, A Man Ain't Supposed to Cry from 1958, a recent Jeremy episode that I really enjoyed. Aww, yeah. And one of our earliest episodes, Dinah Washington, Unforgettable from 1961. Again, a lot of Peggy Lee, Dinah Washington comparisons. Hard living people that had to overcome a lot of difficulties to get where they were and for better or for worse, did what they could with it. Yeah, I saw that early on in Peggy's career, a lot of people assumed she was black because she had like an an actual swing to her delivery and kind of a bluesy tone. And yeah, so I could see that. I also wanted to throw out another episode we did. Sammy Davis Jr.'s What Kind of Fool Am I has that sort of theatrical melodrama jazz thing going on. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Awesome. And uh and the 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 MacArthur Park guy. Richard Harris. Richard Harris, that's his name. Yeah, a similar approach. You know, Peggy Lee was an actor as well and put a lot of thought into the presentation of what was going on and the, the acting and the character behind it. So there's a, a theatrical interpretation of the music in a similar way. Very cool. Lots of uh, previous episodes to check out. And yeah. <laughs> at least one future episode to look forward to because we barely scratched anything on her career realistically <laughs> there's a ton exactly there. <laughs> there's a ton we'll be back and uh it's probably becoming apparent to our regular listeners that we really like sad lounge singers that's like a consistent thing that all three of us are like really hyped on <laughs> yeah i'm finding that i really enjoy that i hadn't spent too much time prior to us doing this podcast with a lot of those records, you know, casually here and there, throw some on when I was working in the record store. But yeah, I've been putting on that uh, Count Basie, Joe Williams record that I have a lot ever since we did the Joe Williams episode. Nice. And there's plenty yeah, so of those if out, there. out there scheming on how to guest on I'd buy that for a dollar. Bring us a sad lounge record. And we'll probably say yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Wonderful. And once again, before we get out of here, go check out patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast in the month of February, 2023, sign up and get those cool perks that come along with it. What are we going out on, Sean? We're going out on the closing song on the album, side B track five, don't smoke in bed. Oh yes. The PSA. Yes. <laughs> of the album. This is, this is another real downer. We skipped over 
a lot of the most up-tempo songs on here. <laughs> did you have Jeremy pick so, the selections? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I almost did four sad songs, and I had to put one out in favor of uh, the Beatles song. That's fine. But I, do, I like the upbeat songs on here as well. Like I said, the title track sets the tone, and if you think about the title track having this mix of emotions and upbeat and strange and sad, all of that is represented here and all works in the context of this wonderful unique record and there's so many songs on here that i was really conflicted on which one to pick to uh preview so dig into the whole record it's very worth it it's usually pretty cheap listen to peggy lee all right we're going out on don't smoke in bed this is another one arranged by mike melvoin who did the last track wonderful thanks for listening to another episode of i'd buy that for a dollar i've been your host sean hartman i'm co-host jeremy and i unlike jeremy am co-host peter (laughs) (laughs) cool 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 interesting okay a note on his dresser and my old wedding ring with these few goodbye words how Can I sing? Goodbye, oh sleepyhead I'm packing you in Like I said Take care of everything Mm-hmm.